We're going to look at God's word today, and um, I just love these This Is My Story moments and hearing people's stories of, of what has made up their faith or what they, where they have come from and all of that, and uh, it's just fantastic. We're going we're gonna to keep on going with the story today, and uh, you know, if you, if you have the app, all the scriptures are in there. They're also going to be on the screens. Let me catch you up ever so slightly. If you've been tracking with us, you know we're going through the story, which is Genesis to Revelation, the whole Bible, chronologically, all the way through through. And uh, we did chapter 11 last week with Gary Connors was speaking, if you were here. And uh, he talked about David, King David, and, and the beginning and how he, how he went from, you know, killing a giant to becoming king. And, you know, it, and, then he, and then Gary, God bless him, he did this whole thing last Sunday and he said, you know, so now we, we got this giant killer, we got this worshiper of God, we got this amazing anointed King David on the throne, and what could possibly go wrong? And then he goes, well, Pastor Patty's going to deal with that next week. Awesome. So that's what I'm doing today. So we're on chapter 12. Um, and, and as always, we can't read it all. Uh, we can't go through it all on a Sunday. You really need to read it for yourself. But I just want to get into it. And here's what I want you to know. Even though there's a blizzard outside, there's a reason you made it here today. And uh, I've really been praying over this message this week, and I think it matters. And, and I already had a few people in first service go, that was, I needed to hear that today. And I think that's going to be true for this service as well. So I want to pray and ask God to give us ears to really hear what he might have to say to us today, because I think you're here for a reason today. Is that all right? So God, would you come, would you take the truth of your scripture, drop it into our hearts, and where... Um, where there are places where we need healing or we need to be set free, I'm, I'm calling on you to do that today, God. And I'm calling you to um, help us to hear you and to have our lives shaped by your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are now. We got King David. We're reading from, if you're in the story, page 161, or if you have your Bibles, it's in Second Samuel. And it's going to be on the screens. And here's the story. Ready? In the spring. Not now. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. And one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And David sent messengers to get her. She came to him. He slept with her. She went back home. She conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, her husband. And Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how the war was going, just making small talk. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all of his master's servants and did not go down to his house. He didn't take David's hint to go home to his wife. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. 
So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David even made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. And in it he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, and then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Well, I guess so. And I'd like to thank whoever it was. I think it was June that just went, yeah, right? Of course it displeased the Lord. This is awful. This is an awful story. And in case your, your, your brain is still unfreezing from the blizzard outside, let me just summarize the awfulness of this story, okay? So first of all, David, who's the king, gets lazy, He's supposed to be out there doing his job. It's the time, it says, when kings go to war and David stayed home. He handed off his job to somebody else. He should have been working, should have been doing his job, and instead he sent others to do it and shockingly got himself into trouble. So he starts off by getting lazy. Then David commits adultery, sleeps with somebody else's wife, and it's not accidental. He knows right well what he's doing. Number three, I see in this story, David abuses his power. And you go, well, where does that happen? Well, you know, there's different situations at different times. But this is a, this is a society uh, at the time. It's highly patriarchal. And it's a king. And I'm guessing that in a world like that, when a king sends to a woman and says, come, she doesn't have the right to say no. So there's an abuse of power that's happening there. And then David betrays a friend. Uriah is listed in scripture as one of David's mighty men. One of the ones, one of the warriors who had fought with David all along. One of the ones that had his back. One of the ones that he trusted. One of the ones that was his hero. Uriah, they had history together. These are friends. And David looks at this woman and goes, somebody find out who that is. And they said, it's your friend's wife. And he slept with her. It's the ultimate, it's this horrible betrayal. And then he tries to cover it up, brings his friend home, thinking, you know, maybe he'll go home, he'll sleep with his wife, he won't figure out that the baby isn't his, and so he tries repeatedly to get him to do this. He even gets him drunk, but Uriah, as it turns out, has more honor than David does and goes, no, while the rest of everybody else is doing their job, what am I going to do? Eat here and sleep here and make love to my wife, which had to be a little stinging to David, who was sitting at home eating and sleeping and doing whatever he wanted, so he wouldn't do it. So... David had him killed. And he doesn't kill him himself. He brings others into the mess, has them withdraw from him so that he's set up and and has him killed. And then just to finish it off, after the grieving time was finished, David brings Bathsheba home as if he's some kind of hero and marries her uh, as if he's, you know, doing a favor. Oh, I'm looking after my, my friend's pregnant widowed wife. And everybody in the palace pretends that they can't count the number of months that go by before she gives birth. 
pretty bad story. It's really awful. Now, the good news is God doesn't let David get away with it. God knows what happened. He confronts him through a prophet named Nathan. And you can read the story yourself of how that happens. And, and to David's credit, he owned it. When Nathan came and talked to him and said, dude, this is not okay. This is dead wrong what you've done. David owned it. He prayed. He grieved. He repented. He went to God. And that, that's, I mean, that's a good thing because you remember the king before David, his name was Saul. And when he messed up, he didn't so much repent as say to Samuel, well, can you just come along with me anyway and pretend everything's fine and give me credibility in everyone's eyes and we'll just fake it that, that I'm okay with God. David didn't do that. David, David, to his credit, when he was confronted with his sin, he repented and, and owned it immediately and prayed and went to God about that. And so, and everybody around him saw that, saw that happen. So that's, that's good, I guess. And then life went on because it does. Life goes on when you've really messed up and when you've repented. But you know, there's this one thing that Nathan, the prophet said to David when he was confronting him. And I just have this feeling that it never left David's mind. I just look at the events that happened over the next years of his life, and I think that he never forgot these words of Nathan. This is what Nathan said to him. Now, David, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. That's heavy. Those are, those are haunting words. Those are the kinds of words that would maybe really stick. And I, I have this thought that I think David never forgot what was said. And the reason I think that is because even though David moves on and he continues as a, as a brilliant king, he continues as a, a very strategic leader, he's highly successful at what he does. He, he is a guy that is known as being in love with God. He's so passionate about God. He loves to worship, all of those things. And he has all of these great things going where he's this fantastic leader. But his family is messed up. I mean, messed up. And it seems that David can't, he just can't deal with that. And so, so let me just give you a little bit of background. And if you read the story, chapter 12, you didn't read this part because it's not in there, but it is in the Bible. And I want to give you the context so that you understand uh, what's happening here. So, so after all of this happens and David has repented and he's moved on and, and life is going on, there comes a time when David's son, whose name is Amnon, rapes his own half-sister, Tamar. And that's awful. And Tamar's other brother, her full brother, Absalom, is enraged by this. And so he takes responsibility for his sister, brings her into his home so that he can care for her. But he's, he's obviously enraged. And it says in 2 Samuel thirteen twenty one, when King David heard all of this, he was furious. But he did nothing. Nothing. And so then, two years after that, Absalom maybe is waiting for his dad to do something about this and bring justice, and he doesn't. And so Absalom takes it into his own hands, and he kills 
Amnon, the first brother, kills him in revenge for his sister, and he does it in the presence of all their other brothers. And so all the other brothers then flee home to the palace to David. And it says in 2 Samuel 13, 36, the king's sons came into David wailing loudly, and the king too, and all his attendants also wept very bitterly, and David did nothing. And so then Absalom, he flees the country because now he's murdered his brother. So he flees for three years. And the Bible says that David mourned first for his first son, for Amnon, and then for Absalom. In fact, what it says is King David longed to go to Absalom for he was consoled concerning Amnon's death, but he did nothing. And in fact, it got so much that Joab, David's second in command, he knows that David misses his son. And so he arranges for Absalom to come back to Jerusalem so that David can see his son. And Absalom thought, well, good, dad wants to see me. Maybe we can talk now, but David would not see him. David knows he's back in the city. He's given permission for him to be back in the city, but he will not speak to him and he will not see him. And so two more years go by. And after two years, Absalom sets Joab's field on fire to get his attention. Joab comes and goes, what are you doing? He goes, I want to see my dad. So the king summoned Absalom and he came in and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. And that was it. Now, I I know I'm, but I'm looking at this and I'm going, no conversation, no ongoing relationship, no, hey, things have gotten really messed up, just this formal bowing down and the king kisses Absalom and then that's it. It seems a little bit token to me. It seems like it wasn't really meaningful. And for me, it's kind of followed up by what you see happens next. Because immediately after that happened, Absalom goes to the city gates and starts this pattern of publicly undermining his dad's leadership. Starts saying to every person that comes into the city, boy, it's a shame you don't have a good leader. I'd be a good leader. He starts undermining his dad's leadership and he does it so effectively that it leads to a significant national rebellion against David. Which leads to David, who's the king, having to flee his palace and flee the city of Jerusalem. And the entire nation gets plunged into civil war and people are dying until Absalom is killed. And then David returns home and he's grief stricken and he's broken, but he still has to function as king. And it seems to me that all of this happened, maybe because David couldn't or wouldn't have the hard conversations, and deal with what was going on in his family. But I mean, how, how could he after all? How, how can you chastise a son for sexual immorality when you know that you did it first? And how can you chastise another son for murder when you know you killed your friend Uriah? And how can you chastise a son for betrayal when you know you did it first? So David did nothing. Maybe felt like he had no moral ground on which to stand, even though he had repented, even though God had forgiven him. 
Life gets complicated, doesn't it? Painful. And even sometimes when we're succeeding and we're thriving and everybody thinks we're doing great, or even times when we know we've repented and we've, we've talked to God about the hard stuff, still sometimes we end up living with this thing called shame, which is a suffocating, horrible, terrible thing to live with and to overcome. And it seems to me when I look at this story that David and God were fine privately. They were okay. David had worked it out with God. He had repented. God had forgiven him. And in some areas of his life, he continued to succeed. He continued to thrive. He wrote all kinds of songs. He wrote all kinds of prayers to God, which are now preserved in our scripture as, as the Psalms. And, and, he, and then he gathered, later in his life, he gathered materials to build a temple for God, the very first one, very first temple. And God said, you're not the one that's going to do it. Your son's going to do it. And David goes, okay, but I'm going to get this stuff. So he gathered all the materials for that to happen. And he set things up for his son's Solomon to succeed him as king. And even with all of his flaws and this horrible story that we've just looked at, David was still considered the best king Israel ever had. But he just couldn't seem to get past what, it ha- what he had done. Didn't seem to be able to get past what God had forgiven, and so it impacted everything. And some of us know what that's like. Some of us You know, the weight of stuff in our past just becomes almost more than we can carry, almost more than we can stand. And each time we think we've gotten past it, you know, we've prayed again and we've repented again and we've just grieved again and gone, oh, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe that. And we're ready to move forward. And and every time we go, okay, we think we've gotten past it and we're ready to move forward. And all of a sudden that little voice happens in our head of, I know what you did. The rest of the world knows what you did. Maybe people don't know what you did, but I know. God knows. And and you have no right, you have no right to tell anybody about how to live well. You have no right to tell anybody about repenting of sin or how to follow Jesus because you're a hypocrite. God can never use you again. And it's this voice that comes from the enemy of our souls or sometimes from our own heads. And God has forgiven us, but we just can't shake the shame. So we deal with it in different ways. And for some, we just go, I'm just going to go into denial. Because the rest of the world, for some of us, would look at us and go, you didn't do anything wrong. It had to be you. You just did what you did. It's nothing wrong. There's nothing to be ashamed of. And, and we go, yeah, I don't have anything. There's nothing. It's all fine. But, but living in, de- in denial and redefining morality, redefining sin, redefining integrity um, doesn't change the reality of what God calls sin. It just doesn't. And sin is a problem. It's a big one. And it has existed and it has tainted us since Adam and Eve and every one of us that's here has been in desperate need of God's forgiveness, right? And, and becoming a Christian and becoming a follower of Jesus means we get that. We understand how much we need help. We understand how much we need salvation. We understand how much we need forgiveness. And we understand that Jesus' death on the cross provides for this. But sometimes, sometimes, we struggle more with how to live after that forgiveness, after that repentance, because God forgives, but sometimes people don't. 
And God forgives, but sometimes we don't forgive ourselves. So we just try to carry on and shove it under the surface and push it down and hope that it doesn't keep popping up. And it's brutal. And for some of us, shame is going to damage the relationships that we have with the people that are closest to us because we're afraid to be honest. And there's no sense of safety. So we ignore the issues that need to be dealt with or we go the other way and we get really, really judgmental of everybody else just hoping nobody will turn and look at us. Or for some of us, it damages our relationship with God. Because we go, what if he didn't really forgive? What if, what if I didn't repent enough? What if I didn't say the right words? What if, what if it's just too bad and it's too big? Or, or what if God has forgiven me, but he can never use me again? And he's just putting up with me and I've really blown it and I'll get to heaven, but that's about all there is. So here's what I want you to understand today from David's story and from God's bigger story. Here's what I want you to hear. When God forgives, it's done. It's done. When God forgives, it's done. And it's so hard to accept for some of us because we go, but it's so deep and it's so big. How can this be? But there is this repeated theme throughout Scripture of the hugeness of God's forgiveness. I mean, listen to these verses that are in Scripture. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us nor will he remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love towards those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth, and he has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. By the way, you know who wrote that? David. If anybody knew, he did. It's from Psalm 103. When God forgives, it's done. Here's the second thing I want you to hear. Don't let your past sin and shame have the last word. Don't. Don't let it stop you from doing all that God has called you to do now. And you go, I don't know how to move forward. Well, it might mean there's, there's some honest conversations that might have to happen. Not easy ones, but maybe some honest ones. And you've got to have wisdom around that. There's no question and all of that. But maybe there's something to be said for owning what has happened with somebody and getting honest with them and moving forward so that you don't get paralyzed by fear and shame because that's not from God. And, you know, I get thinking about this story, and I go, what might have happened if David had done that? What might have happened if David had, had, gone, to his, had gone to his son Amnon and had owned his sin with him and said, yeah, I sinned, and I paid a consequence, and I repented, and I set you a terrible example, my son. But that example does not give an open door for you to just go and do the same thing. 
And, and, and my son, I'm not going to just continue to be a bad example by pretending that this is okay and by not dealing with it because of my own past because you're hurting people that are I'm responsible for and that I care about. I mean, it would have been an awfully tough conversation and I don't know how it would have gone, but it might have made things end differently. Or what might have happened if, if David had owned it with his son Absalom instead of just ignoring him and refusing, him to sp- refusing to speak to him, refusing to deal with Amnon, refusing to deal with what had happened? What if he had gone to Absalom and said, yeah, I should have done something. I should have brought justice. I should have brought protection for Tamar. I should have done this. I should have talked to you sooner, Absalom. What can I do to try to start rebuilding this relationship? I don't know. Things might have ended differently. What might have happened if David had taken the leadership for which he was responsible and had stopped the injustices and the wrongs that were happening under his rule instead of just ignoring them because he was afraid to deal with them? Listen, don't, don't, don't. Don't let your past sin and shame have the last word. Don't abdicate what God has called you to do and what God has called you to be. Don't let the voice of the enemy or your own head stop you from moving forward because if God has forgiven, it's done. Here's the third pig. God can redeem our lives and he can bring good. And it's crazy How out of this horrible, wretched story? I mean, how big does God have to be to bring good out of that? That big. (laughs) And he is that big. And out of David's uh, marriage to Bathsheba, Solomon was born. Solomon became the next king of Israel, the most, the wisest man that ever lived. He was so amazing. Not perfect, but good. He was a good king. And, and then you add to that, that that all became part of the lineage of the Messiah of Jesus Christ, because God just keeps including messed up people in his family, like David and like me and like you. God is more than capable of bringing good out of our lives and using us for his purposes, no matter what we've done. You know, I was, I was talking with someone recently, and, uh, and they, they said that I could share the conversation with you. I'm not going to tell you their name. I'm not going to tell you the details. But they said that I could share with you a little bit of what God had done for them. And it was someone that I've had, you know, lots of conversations with, and they had talked to me about this is part of my past. This is part of uh, what I've dealt with. And, and we had prayed together, and, and there had been repentance and forgiveness and all of that kind of stuff. But they said, you know, I'm still just struggling, Pastor Patty, every now and then, because every time I try to move forward, this thing would come back in my mind, and I would still be struggling with it. And, oh, maybe I didn't repent hard enough. Maybe I'm not forgiven enough. All of those things are just this tormenting thing until they said, finally, one night recently, late at night, I just got on the edge of my bed and I stared out the window and I just talked really, really honestly with God. Because they said, you know, I felt like I couldn't even look him in the face. And I just went, God, this is the whole story. This is what happened. This is what I did. This is all of it. These are my feelings. This is my thoughts. And I can't shake the shame. And you know what? God met with them. 
And they described it to me, and this is what they said, and they said that I could share this with you today. It was God saying that he knows. He's always known from the moment it happened until now. And he forgave me right when I repented the first time. He's never held it against me. And he loves me just as much today as before that happened. And it was me surrendering every part of my life to him. Even though I knew he knew, but once I surrendered to him what I did and how I felt about it and my guilt and my shame and surrendered even my thoughts to him, well, then it's all out in the open. And I know that God knows there's nothing hidden. And now when those thoughts come up, they're easily shut down by my response, nope. (laughs) I live surrendered to God. And he knows already. And he loves me anyway. Isn't that amazing? When God forgives, it's done. So here's what we're going to do on this snowy Sunday morning. We're going to end with prayer because probably there's people here today that are in the same boat and need to just know God's forgiveness and need to have that shame broken off. So I'm going to ask if you would uh, bow your heads in prayer and... uh, also, at the same time, we're going to have a prayer on the screen, so you can look at that if you want to. It doesn't matter. But, but shut yourself in with God. And, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through a prayer, and it's actually the prayer that David prayed when Nathan confronted him. And that thing that, that, that leaves shame sitting on you, that thing, we're just going to bring that to God. And we're going to pray this through. You're kind, God. Please have pity on me. You're always merciful. Please wipe away my sins. Wash me clean from all of my sin and guilt. I know about my sins. And I can't forget my terrible guilt. God, you are really the one that I've sinned against. I've disobeyed you. I've done wrong. So it's right and fair for you to correct and punish me. I've sinned and done wrong since the day I was born. But you want complete honesty. So teach me true wisdom. Wash me until I am clean and whiter than snow. Pray that again. Wash me until I am clean and whiter than snow. God, I think of that snow outside. Wash me till I am clean and whiter than snow. Let me be happy and joyful again. You crush my bones, now let them celebrate. Turn your eyes from my sin and cover my guilt. God, create pure thoughts in me. Create pure thoughts in me. God, where my thoughts go, where they need to not go, break the power of that and create pure thoughts in me. Make me faithful again. Don't chase me away from you. Don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. Make me as happy as you did when you saved me. Make me want to obey God. 
And I'll teach other people, I'll teach sinners your law and they'll return to you. So keep me from any deadly sin. Only you can save me. Then I'll shout and sing about your power to save. Help me to speak and I'll praise you, Lord. Offerings and sacrifices are not what you want. The way to please you is to feel sorrow deep in our hearts. This is the kind of sacrifice you won't refuse. God, we pray this prayer and some of us just praying this prayer again for something that we just carry shame over. Or maybe it's something that is the first time we've repented of it. We bring it to you and we go, God, would you break the power of that thing in my life? Break the power of that thing in my life. God, I call for the lightning truth of your word that when you forgive, it is done. And I call for that to break off shame in our lives and break off fear in our lives so that we can walk forward knowing right well that we're not perfect and you know we're not perfect, but we are a child of God and we are forgiven and you have made us new and you have made us clean and you have called us to be and do more than we ever imagined. God, I pray for those here. There's some of us that are going to need some real wisdom because we maybe need to have some hard conversations. We maybe need to get honest in a few places. We may need to figure out how do we, how do we walk this out? How do we move forward? God, for those, would you give wisdom? And would you give help? And would you give assurance? I will take you there. I will walk you through this. And God, then would you help us to walk out of here and carry that amazing compassion and forgiveness and grace to a world out there that desperately needs it. Because there's a world out there that thinks that you are a God that does not forgive, that all you do is judge. Would you help us to show them, no, it's God who forgives. God, as we go out into our work and into our schools and into our families and our neighborhoods, would you help us to carry Jesus, the forgiving, compassionate, cleansing Jesus. Would you help us to carry Jesus to all those places, help us to do good, help us to love each other, and help us to reveal Jesus to a world that desperately needs him. Bring us home safely today and back next week. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here and you want to receive prayer, you want somebody to just pray with you, we've got people at the prayer stations through the sanctuary as we do every Sunday. Make sure that you say hi to somebody before you leave. And you know what? Be safe going home. Thanks for coming today. You are deeply loved. God bless you. We'll see you next Sunday.